This morning I would like for us to turn in God to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And we'll read a few verses there. This dealing with the explanation by Peter of what was seen by the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, we're going to read beginning at verse 14 and read down through this account. Taking our text though from verse 37. Acts chapter uh, 2 verse 14, the scripture says, But Peter standing up with the eleven lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles, and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, 
he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in hell neither his flesh did see corruption this Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received the father from of the father the promise of the Holy Ghost he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear for David is not ascended into the heavens but he saith himself the Lord said unto my Lord sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children. And to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day were added unto them about three thousand souls. We'll end our reading there. We trust the Lord will bless us for having been in his word. Again, I want us to take as our text, particularly the question that we find at the end of verse 37, where it is asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? Well, before we go any further, let's just ask the Lord to meet with us. Father in heaven, now we pray that you will bless thy word. We pray that thou will use it in our hearts, in our minds. May it be that which is a light to our path, but also may it be that which shines in our hearts to show us our place with our God and the things that our God holds forth to us by his grace as the promises that are in Christ Jesus of life and of liberty. Lord, I pray that you will bless now this time. Help me as thy servant. I pray that thou will give us the blessing of our God. For we meet this day in his name. And we pray it all for his sake. Amen. We read this morning in this chapter of the first real preaching of the apostles at the day of Pentecost. And it is safe to say that the day was unlike any other day that's ever been known. The extraordinary way in which the attention of the city of Jerusalem was gained was not to be seen or known before or since. The scripture tells us that the means by which men were brought under the sound of the gospel was that each heard the witness 
of the marvelous wonders of the works of God, mightily and clearly stated, but not stated in an acquired language, but each in the language of his own birth. Their question that they asked each other as they saw all this happening is, how is this happening? Two men from different lands standing side by side heard the same witness given, but heard it in their native tongue. Now we might ask, did this mean that each had a separate speaker that spoke only in that tongue and the other heard from a different speaker? So you had two speakers and two hearers, as it were? Or is it possible that through the power of the Holy Spirit, one speaker was heard differently by the ear of those that heard? Well, my question to that is, does it really matter? And I will say no. It was not the tongues that were the great end that was in the purpose of God. We may even say that the witness to the works of the Lord also was not the great end. Though that would have been marvelous to hear. The great end of all of this, as Peter says, was that these men were brought to the place where they were to hear the gospel. And so hearing, many believed to the glory of of Jesus Christ. But just as remarkable as the effect of hearing of the works of God in the native tongue of each hearer is the effect of hearing the gospel to the hearts of those that heard. Certainly the power of the Holy Spirit is as evident as in any other part of this account by the effect of hearing the gospel. So we might even ask this. How is it. Or how does it occur. That a man. That at one moment. Is either antagonistic. To the Lord Jesus. Or is completely uninterested. In the things of the gospel. Comes to call out. What shall we do. How does that change come. The change is almost unimaginable. Further. The change is not one of disinterest to interest, nor even hostility to earnest concern. The change that you see here that's taking place, the marvelous work of the Holy Ghost, is that there was a change from being dead in the trespasses and sins to having faith to cry out. How does this happen? This is the miracle of that day. Well, the answer to the question that I just asked explains the nature of any man's coming to salvation. The answer is that the Holy Spirit touches the dead heart and brings life. This is called regeneration. What was in darkness comes to light. What was once all unbelief is now faith. But faith specifically placed again it is unbelief that becomes faith but faith that is specifically placed 
the Holy Spirit brings faith, but he doesn't bring general faith. He brings faith that lands, as it were, in a specific place, so to speak. Once the heart is alive, there are then natural evidences that are always seen, though it may be witnessed in different ways. Well, what was the evidence of faith? Well, you read that in verse 38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. When a man believes, he comes to that place that is marked by those words in verse 38. Now, I want to be very clear. What Peter says there in verse 38 is not the means to faith. Many are those that disregard what is being said here in favor of something that they think is being said here. Repentance and open faith is always seen in true salvation. There is repentance that is the result of the Holy Spirit bringing true conviction to the heart. That conviction has a outworking. These things that Peter speaks of are not the means to faith, but rather the evidence of faith. And the Holy Spirit brings about at the moment when the regenerating of his heart takes place to any man a conviction. A conviction. And here I want to pause and mention that there is repentance, there is faith, but it is a result of the Holy Spirit making alive and bringing true conviction of heart to the one that believes. Now, I want to also ask in this, because this is a very pertinent question. If the Holy Spirit brings conviction, at the time when a man is made alive, we'd have to ask the question, conviction of what? Conviction of what? What is it that the Holy Spirit brings conviction for? Well, it may seem the answer is obvious. Maybe so. But I want us to think for a few moments on what we are taught In this passage about the need and the nature of true conviction as we see it in this passage. So my subject this morning, what I'm seeking to present to you is this. We have here in this passage a lesson in the nature of God's conviction that leads to repentance and saving faith. So we're going to think about the Holy Spirit's work of conviction. And note how that actually works itself out and how it applies to us. First, I want you to think with me on what I'm calling the grounds of conviction. The grounds of conviction. And I want you to understand that it is not at all a coincidental point that the words of verse 36 precede the question of those that heard Peter that day. What's verse 36 say again? Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. Peter sets forth the grounds upon which all true conversion occurs. 
there is a conviction in the hearts of those that hear the gospel on two points and always two points. Now I'm going to admit that what I'm going to say to you over the next couple of minutes is something that was suggested to my mind by G. Campbell Morgan in his commentary but I think it's so evident here that it's not just his thought but I think it's indeed this plain teaching of scripture. But I'm going to paraphrase him to a degree as I set forth my thought. Conviction is always on two points. And his comments were, his thought was that conviction, if true, rests first on the persuasion that Jesus Christ is Lord and will be dealt with. And second, that sin lies in the heart and that will be judged in the light of the Lordship of Christ. Now you say, what are you saying? Well, I want you to think with me on this. Many think, I think probably most people think, that the reason for the lack of conviction in the day in which we live is that there's a sense of the lack, or lack of the sense of sin. Men just don't sense that they are sinners. In other words, men need to be brought to know God's law. And to know that they are guilty of breaking the law. Well. That is true in a sense. I can say though that we see men all around us wantonly sinning. And caring nothing for it. But I maintain it is not that men are ignorant of the truth. And the demands of God's law. In fact if. We take the words of Paul. Much of God's law is already written on man's heart. He knows what's right and wrong. He knows God's law by nature. If not specifically through the written word of God. Paul says in Romans 2. For when the Gentiles. Which have not the law. Do by nature the things contained in the law. These. Having not the law. Are a law unto themselves. Which show the work of the law. Written in their hearts. Men are not so ignorant of the law of God. I think of the testimony of Paris Reedhead when he goes off as a missionary to the deep recesses of Africa. And he thought, well, when I get over there, they're going to receive me and be glad that I'm bringing to them the gospel and the demands of the law. And he said that when he got over there, he was stunned because he found that these people knew far more about God's law by nature than he ever would have imagined. And he says the, the thing that I came to the conclusion of. Because they had the law of God written on their hearts. That these people in his words were monsters of iniquity. Man is not so ignorant of what God says. Man is not so ignorant of what God demands. Although yes there are things that we need to present in the word of God. That outlines that, defines that, categorizes that and applies that. But man is not so ignorant. That you can say, well, we just need to preach the law. And because of that, then men, once they become illuminated to what God demands, they will then have a sense of sin and that will change their hearts. No, sir. The greatness of depravity, I say, the extent of depravity, the horrific nature 
of depravity is seen in the, that even when men know the law of God, and even though they know the consequence of breaking that law, they readily go ahead and sin anyway. Well, you and I would have to ask, how come? Why is this so? Why is it that men can know that the wages of sin is death, and yet, eh, shrug their shoulders. I'm going to go off and do my thing anyway. I'm going to go off and teach my all kinds of things anyway. <coughs> what Morgan suggests, and what I agree, I agree with him, that the lack of conviction and fear of the consequence of sin is the result of men being convinced that there is no God behind the law. There is no God to hold us accountable. Oh yeah, here's the law, but you know what? I'm never going to see anything because I break it. What's that? There's no God. No God. The lack of conviction is the lack of the acknowledgement of the Lordship of Christ. Until men realize that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he will be the judge of the quick and the dead, that he will not excuse sin, that he will sit in that day with the books open, judging that which has been done by men, until men come to that knowledge or that place where they realize that Jesus Christ is Lord, they're never going to know the conviction of sin. But then we also have to say this, and I think this is also true from what we read here. There is no seeing of Christ as Lord to whom we will answer until the Holy Spirit opens the heart and convinces us of this. This is a miracle of grace. We are shown by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is Lord and Christ. When we realize that, then you find that there are necessary outcomes of that. And one of those is what we see here in our, our scripture. Think with me for just a moment. You would think that when men handle the things of God, whether the word of God or things that have to do with the person of Christ, emblems of the person of Christ, teachings of the person of Christ, you would think that men would be fearful to an extent of what they hold and what they handle. But I would suggest to you that men frequently handle the things of God. They perform their rites and their ceremonies with no fear or reverence for what they do. Why? There is no knowledge of Christ. Christ is not truly Lord to them. Christ is only an idea. Oh, we believe that there was the person of the Lord Jesus. We believe that he is the Son of God. But it's never come to the place where they see that he is Lord to whom they must bow. You ask the question, you see it in scripture. We can ask the question, how is it that the sons of Eli who were dealing with the things that had to do with the sacred emblems of the tabernacle and of the sacrament, how could the sons of Eli be so wicked? Or we might even ask, include that, how about the sons of Samuel or the sons of David? How is it that Caiaphas, the high priest, in the day when the Lord Jesus was crucified, 
could be in a position of high priest, handled all the things that the high priest handled, and yet be so wicked in the condemnation of Christ. How we might even go further. How is it that Paul, the self-righteous Pharisee Paul, how is it that he can do the things that he did? How could he arrest Christians and still claim that it was all in the name of God? My point is this, when it comes to the grounds of conviction, conviction that is seen as part of the work of the Holy Ghost to bring a man to salvation, conviction is a two-part matter. There must be the convincing and being brought to understand that you will face the Lord Jesus, that he is Lord, that he will be judge. And then you also must be convicted or convinced that there will be seen in the light of that how lost and undone you are. That's what it was with these people. They finally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, came to understand who Christ was. And in the light of that, they found we are terrible, wicked sinners and the wrath of God abides on us. Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were undone. That is conviction. What shall we do? Now, I want us to see, secondly, the nature of conviction. The nature of conviction. And the matter at hand serves as an ample illustration of what happens when a man is truly convicted of his state before God. You say, well, what is that? He asks, as it were, maybe not in these words, What shall we do? What shall we do? Now, I want to take a step back. What really was involved in that question? When they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? What is really the question? Is is this merely a cry to understand what the works of their hands might be to change their future before God? Is that what they were saying? What can we do? No, I don't think so at all. Theirs was the earnest cry of hearts that realized their utter condemnation before God, before Jesus Christ, who truly was God. It was the cry, I say, we are undone. What shall we do? In other words, we are undone. The point that I'm bringing out is simply this. True conviction is not an internal happening only. It's not just a moving of the heart to see sin. Men times think, well, uh, he needs to be convicted. In other words, you need to have something happen in your heart. Well, there's something more than that. True conviction, when it is the product of the Holy Spirit making the heart alive is a cry for rescue and relief from sin. When they were convicted, they could not keep their mouths closed. They could not keep themselves self-contained, as it were. It was not just all something that happened within. There was something that had to extend out of man. And I say that's what these people were really saying with their question. And may I say it this way? With this picture, we can conclude that true conviction always includes, 
always includes a crying out for rescue from the judgment that comes from the awareness of Christ as Lord and Judge. Some people put it like this. When a baby is born, and that baby receives the slap on the backside, and breath comes into the lungs, what's the first thing you hear from the baby that's made a lie? Well, you say, well, he, he cries. Well, yes, yes, there's the point. When a soul is brought from death into life, there will be the natural response of faith within. That response will be, as it were, the calling out. What must I do to be saved, was the cry of the Philippian jailer. Certainly. I think this is behind the statement of Paul. When he says, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In fact, Peter even uses the same thing here in chapter 2 of Acts. When men see the coming judgment of God, they will cry out. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Conviction has a reaction. It's not simply internal. The nature of conviction is it reaches out to the Lord Jesus, reaches out for the remedy of sin. Conviction moves. You might even say, that makes conviction kind of a grace of God, doesn't it? When God gives grace, he extends grace, does the grace come and just do nothing? Or does it always achieve the end that God means for it to have? Well, say, well of course it's the second grace works yes conviction we might even say is a grace given of the spirit of God that brings a man to that place where he reaches out for Jesus Christ if it's true conviction is it always instantaneous no not necessarily but that always the end of true gospel conviction is always the person of Christ well, third, the product of conviction. Isn't that what you've just been talking about? I've been talking about the nature of conviction, how conviction works, what it's meant to do. But let's notice what Peter says in verse 38 are really the two things that are seen as a product of Holy Ghost conviction that causes men to cry out, what shall we do? Peter lists them. He says there will be repentance from sin and the need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Now, I have to say that the way that this is stated seems to be somewhat an awkward answer to our ear. Is Peter saying that you have to be baptized and have your sins washed away? No. Let's consider these two things. First, repentance. Now at this point, I'm not going to discuss what repentance is. I'm rather going to, to think with you on what repentance does. In brief, to answer the first part, repentance, and I want you to think with me, repentance is 
the complete agreement with God concerning the state of affairs in the heart and life. It is also an agreement with the way in which God says the life is rescued. I agree with God. And what God says I need to do, have happened in my life, where I'm to go, what I'm to be, I agree with all of that. But further, it's not only agreement, but the actual turning away from sin. Not in word, but in reality. And let me say, there is no such thing as repentanceless salvation. Where a man will agree with what God says about him. What God says is his need. What God says is the end that he will face if he continues on in his sin. There is no salvation without that agreement. There is no salvation without a man saying, okay, you know what, I'm done with that. I come to the feet of the one who is Lord and Savior. But my question is not, as I said, what repentance is. My question is, what does repentance do? And the previous words of Peter give the answer. Go back to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. You say, what's the point with that? This. Repentance is the bowing to the Lordship of Christ. In essence, Here is the Lord Jesus, and I not only agree with him and all that he says to my heart, with all that the Holy Spirit brings to me and shows me plainly and clearly, and not only is it now my heart's resolve to turn away from sin, but repentance is an outward act. It's not just a mental change. There's also an outward act in which you come, as it were, and you bow to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I say repentance brings the bowing to Christ and the giving of the heart to Christ. What he says, I will do. Again, isn't that what what Paul did? Acts chapter 9, verse 6, And trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Paul came, as it were, and he bowed before Christ... He realizes he was a sinner. He realizes he was undone. He agrees with Christ in all things that Christ says to him as the Spirit of God illuminates his heart, makes him alive. And you see then Paul coming to the place where he bows himself to Jesus Christ. Lord, what would thou have me to do? And I say, repentance brings a man to the feet of Christ And gives over all things to his rule and his way. Lord, I'm done. I'm done with my my old way. Old things are passed away. And I bow before you. You are now the one I trust. You are now the one I recognize as Lord. And I bow before you and I give over all things to you.
to your rule and to your way. What did Paul say? And again, he uses very earthy language in saying this. But doesn't Paul comment to the Philippians, I look at all the things that are in my past, and I count them, and he uses the word but dung, that I might know him, that I might know Christ, that I might win him, that I might know the benefits of his mercies to my soul. I give up everything. I turn from it all. It's, it's, it's nothing to me anymore. I realize that Christ is Lord. And I give myself. I bring myself to him. Repentance. Is not just the 180 degree turn. That so many like to say in very trite language. It is much more than that. It again is an estimation of Jesus Christ. It is a knowledge of who I am. And it is then the bowing before him. The giving up of all things and the resolve, as it were, I will allow him to rule. I will walk in his ways. Peter says, okay, you ask me, what shall you do? Repent. Repent in the light of Jesus Christ being Lord and Christ. Then, be baptized. This seems, and many have taken it this way, this seems to say that baptism is a means to the remission of sins. And I would say it's anything but. Why would Paul or Peter then use this, this ordinance, this sacrament, if you will, in this connection, in this place, in this moment? Well, we'd have to ask the question. What is baptism? And I'll tell you, the things that people were doing or knowing or seeing or experiencing because of their outward baptism in the day of which you read here is far different than what we face in our day now. What did it mean to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, in many ways, it was a putting of the life on the line. You are now identified. Now the Jews would look at, uh, at Jesus Christ and want to crucify him. What did they do with the apostles? Well, the apostles were hunted, weren't they? They had to hide themselves for fear of the Jews. What did it mean if you came out and were openly baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in front of the whole witness of this city that was so antagonistic to Jesus Christ? What could it possibly mean? You were marking yourself. But what is baptism? And again, this may be different than some who call themselves Presbyterians. I, I, I diverge from my uh, Presbyterian label when I say what I'm saying here. I say baptism. Far from being a mark of inclusion. Baptism is the expression of faith. You are showing Faith. That's what Peter's getting at. Repent and show your faith. It's an owning of Christ publicly as Christ and Savior and Lord. We might even say it this way. Baptism is the seal of the union that now exists with the Lord Jesus. 
I've used this illustration before. I think it is an excellent one. Baptism is the putting on of a wedding ring. I am now Christ's. And Christ is mine. And I openly, publicly, demonstrably am proving I have faith in Jesus Christ. Again, what does your wedding ring say? You take that ring, what does it say? Well, I think it says this. I have joined with my spouse to live for and live with my spouse forevermore. We are one. There's an indissoluble union. What God hath joined together, let not man put us under. You can't have what God joins, you can't have it put us under. You can't disjoin that. Contrary to what some will say. Peter is simply saying what we're talking about here, this change, the result, the product of the conviction of the heart of a man who is truly coming to Christ is this. You ask me the question, what shall we do? I'm telling you, you're going to see this. When the Holy Spirit makes you alive, you are going to see repentance. You're going to see the bowing to Christ. He is now Lord of all things. Then you will also, and by the way, I don't believe the idea of lordship salvation and that you are saved by making Christ Lord. No, 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 no. No, that you are saved and as a result of being saved, you can't help but make Christ Lord. He is Lord. It always happens. But there is that, there is the repentance. But then there is the owning of Christ. The showing of faith. In fact, I think in some ways this explains what James is trying to talk about when he says, you say you've got faith? I'll show you my faith. Yes. So I think it comes back to this. Do you want to be rescued from the condemnation that your conviction says that you are under? Peter says, repent and believe. Show faith. Believe in that way that shows itself. And you are free from condemnation. Some might even say, well, that sounds like a hymn that we sing. Trust and obey. We might even say it might be, well, so maybe we should write another hymn. Submit and show. Or perhaps turn and believe. All these things, same idea. This is the message. This is the lesson. This is the product of conviction. Repentance shown, demonstrated, committal to Jesus Christ by faith. Now, finally, what does this mean to me? How does this apply how does the Holy Spirit convicting men and pointing to the Lordship of Christ apply to me? Well, I think we must keep in mind the purpose of the coming of the Lord Jesus in all of this. Acts chapter 3, verse 26 says, Unto you first God, having raised up his Son, sent him to bless you, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Does that not sound like what we've been talking about with repentance? Turning every one of you away from his... He, the Lord Jesus came to bless you. So, 
we would say this. The purpose of God is that the Lord Jesus was sent as the one who would turn men to God. Was that not our memory verse? For Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Yes, the purpose of God is that Jesus would bring us to God. But also, the statement is this, and this is, I think, how it applies to you and to me. There is blessing. (laughs) It's not a one-sided street. It's not all toward the Lord that we're bringing and giving to God. No, sir. There is blessing in the turning away from sin. This repentance is not a repentance that is only uh, painful. Paul tells the Corinthians, I'm not sorry that I made you sorry because you sorrowed unto a godly, uh, you suffered after a godly sorrow to bring you to repentance. And we tend to think, oh, repentance, that's all the agony of soul, that's all the pain of my spirit. Repentance is hard, and I'm going to find it to be that which is just, oh, I don't want to repent very often because it's just so hard. No, sir. Repentance is a blessing of God. The Spirit of God convicts you, draws you, illuminates you, enlivens you, so that you might repent because all the blessings of God are entailed in that work as well. God's blessing of being your God, of caring for you, upholding you, saving you. All the blessings of God, the riches that are in Christ Jesus, are made ours. And they are communicated to us through the Spirit of God. There's blessing in the turning away. There's blessing in conviction. There is blessing in repentance and faith. So my, say, you say, how does this apply to me? This. Consider blessing. The blessing of God is yours if this is your experience before God. But also, we must keep this in mind. We must see God's way. And so, I have these two things that I'm presenting as further application. Number one, then this applies, this whole subject, the whole picture, everything that we're talking about by the ministry of the Spirit of God we must understand that we are absolutely dependent. We think in our minds, we understand in our hearts, we are absolutely dependent on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring us to the place where we acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. But also, and here's the point, to bring us to the point where we enjoy the Lordship of Christ. Now, I know this is going to sound as a, a sort of an abstract idea, but it is the most practical, down-to-earth, where the rubber meets the road truth that there is. You and I are meant by our God, not only to love Him, but to enjoy Him forever. You are to enjoy who your God is. Is He Lord? Yes, because He is my Lord. I can know him and enjoy him in a way that I never could before when I was a lost man. Child of God, you can enjoy Jesus Christ as your Lord, seeing him doing all things for you, leading you, guiding you, helping you, sustaining you, providing for you, conquering your enemies, 
All the various promises of God that are in him. Yea and amen. You can enjoy Jesus Christ. Let us understand Paul's, or excuse me, Peter's words to these people is fundamental to my walking and enjoying Christ as well. We see the wonder of belonging to him. We see the power of belonging to him. So, that's the first application. We must see we are, and understand we are absolutely dependent upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit for all of this to be mine. So we say, come Holy Spirit. Breathe on me, thou breath of God. I don't want to pray without the help of the Spirit of God. I don't want to read the scripture without the help of the Spirit of God. I don't want to think on the things of Christ without the Spirit of God. I don't want to speak of the things that concern Jesus Christ without the help of the Spirit of God. I am so absolutely dependent upon him. But second, the second application is that we need to diligently pray for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our own hearts and among men. The Spirit of God is absolutely essential in his help to us. Therefore, it is our place to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. And again, I want you to understand, this takes this whole picture to another level. Some are today asking, Lord, I want the Holy Spirit so that I can have the tongues like they did. The tongues were a side note to this whole thing. They really were quite... I mean, this is a a tool that God used in that moment, but they are rather, quite frankly, uh, in some ways, non-essential or inconsequential. It was the power of the Holy Spirit that worked in the hearts of these people, that so worked that at the end of everything, we read that 3,000 people came to the Lord Jesus. The Spirit of God working on what Paul, or I keep saying Paul, Peter said, Repent and let faith show itself. There was the power. That's what we need to be praying for. Lord, let me know that. Let me see that. Help me. Because I'm not anything. I have nothing in myself. I have no strength. But with the Spirit of Christ which dwelleth in me, I can do all things through Christ. Which strengtheneth me. Well, those are the thoughts that the Lord gave for today. We trust the Lord will bless it to us for his name's sake. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer and then sing together. Glory be to the Father. Father in heaven, now we would pray that you will take the word of God and apply it to us. We pray that thou would allow it to be that which guides our thinking. Lord, indeed, even causes us to be those who, in many ways, limits our thinking to what we know to be true from the word of God and not to draw our own conclusions. Lord, I pray that you will bless this to us, bless the name of Jesus Christ this very day and this thy day as the word of God is going forth. Keep us in thy fear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.